don't know how to pronounce it. I just say it, and people think I know, and then you just, just go on, see. So, but I liked your honesty. I, uh, uh, just, the Lord be with you. Uh, please pray with me. Oh, God, we give you thanks that your love goes with us. And we give thanks that your love is always calling us. Help us to hear that call and to respond. Amen. I don't know why it happened this way, but this week has been a hard one for me in trying to figure out what in the world to say. I had the flu this week. If you ever had the flu, it's not a lot of fun. Um, it's ironic that I got my flu shot and I got the flu. My wife is not gotten a flu shot, and she has not gotten a flu, so I don't know if that means something about me. Um, it's a hard text, you know, because here's what I really wish I could do. The scouts are here today. You know, y'all aren't ever here except on Scout Sunday, which is fine. Just, you know, I'd like to be happy and all with y'all today. Um, here's what I like to have done. Pete, get up and read, and um, really liked what he had to read this morning about Jesus. Jesus starting off his ministry, and he starts it off uh, with a bang. He's preaching in his hometown synagogue, his church from home. Jesus gets up to read from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And he really talks about how he is the fulfillment of God's salvation, bringing good news to the poor, release to the captives and such. And then he says that today this scripture has been fulfilled. I like that. And then I like the very first part that Nathan read after that. When he said this, he said, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they were saying to each other, Isn't this Joseph's son? And then I'd like for us to have stopped and just stayed there. Basking in the, in the love that, that, that obviously that Jesus has for his people and obviously the people have for him. They're all excited. <coughs> I mean, it would be great just to talk about how much God loves us. And how much God cares about us. And I think he does. And I think that needs to be said over and over and over again. Just a few weeks ago in our worship service on the Sunday that we uh, reflected on the baptism of Jesus. And we were reminded that, that we are all children of God. We are all children of God. We are all loved by God and blessed by God and called by God. It's important to talk about how much God loves us. Just a few days ago, as we remembered the life and celebrated the life of one of our dear church members, Gladys Arnold, I made sure to remind ourselves that God's love went with Gladys all through her life, and now that God's love is fully with her in eternal life. And not only is that love with Gladys, but that same love goes with us as well. Jesus loves us, and Jesus cares about us. We always need to hear that and remember that. I just wish that we could focus on just that, that Jesus loves us. Did I break it? Yeah, you know. And the rest of our story today, though, it reminds us that even though God loves us, God doesn't love just us. And the way that God might love is not always going to be how we want God to love. 
I would even suggest that unless sometimes we get offended and upset with how God shows God's love, then maybe we really aren't in tune with what God's love is all about. You see, as for us as Christians who seek to follow in the way of Jesus, this way that God loves, this way that God loves shown us in Jesus, that's how we are being called to love as well. In other words, not only may we not like the way that God loves people, but we are called to love others in that same way. You see, God loves people other than us, and we're supposed to love them too. Here's what I'm trying to say. Oh, that's not what I'm trying to say yet, sorry. We find this story today just in the book of Luke. It's Luke's telling of how Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus has just come out of his, his days of temptation. He'd been in the desert for 40 days, tempted by the devil. He comes out and it says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And soon he ends up in his hometown of Nazareth. He gets up to read from Scripture. Then he tells everybody that today it's been fulfilled. And everyone's excited because they know that that message is for them. They are the poor who receive the good news. They are the ones who have been held captive but now are being freed. But sometimes Jesus will remind them that sometimes this message isn't just for you. And sometimes this message isn't for you at all. Jesus tells a couple stories from the Old Testament. Both of them were situations where people of Israel, God's chosen people, are in need. But instead of going to them, God goes to somewhere else. There were a whole bunch of, of, of widows. <coughs> In Israel, who were suffering during a time of famine. But instead of going to them, God sends his prophet Elijah to a foreign widow. Later on, there are lepers all through the land of Israel. But instead of God sending Elisha to them, God sends them to a foreigner. Naaman the Syrian. Jesus reminds the folks of that, that God is loving in ways that they don't like God to love, they quickly turn on Jesus. They go from praising His words to wanting to, they take Him and they actually take Him to the, a cliff on the edge of town and they're going to throw Him off and kill Him and it says somehow Jesus just walks away. Why do they turn on Jesus so quickly? Because Jesus tells them that God's love isn't just about them. But that God loves those who are not them. God even loves those that we are convinced God's not supposed to love. Now this reaction shouldn't surprise us. It plays out on a bigger stage later on. In that week that we call Holy Week. It begins on a day called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey. And people are singing his praises. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're even laying down palm branches as a sign of respect to Jesus. That's on a Sunday. But Thursday, the powers that be, the religious and political powers that be, get a hold of him. And on Friday, they kill him. They put him on a cross. And they put him on a cross to let everybody know this is what happens to you 
when you don't speak well of the powers that be. See, Jesus had gone around for three years lifting up those on the bottom, hanging out with those who everybody knew you're not supposed to hang out with, and calling out the people in power who were abusing those on the bottom. And the, the powers didn't like that, so they killed him. They got rid of Jesus and his message of love. You see, the way of Jesus is a way that includes God's love for us, but that we don't have a special claim to that love. The way of Jesus is a way of love that tears down notions that some are more loved, that we matter more than them. And if this way never bothers us or upsets us, then maybe we aren't very clued in into how wide God's love and embrace is. Here's what I'm trying to say. Unless we're being challenged in how we are to show love to other people, I wonder if we're really hearing God's call to love other people. Because if we love only those who are like us and who are us, those who are easy to love, then how are we going to know the love of Jesus? Martin Buber was a theologian, a Jewish theologian of the last century. And in one of his books, he, he had uh, quotes about different famous rabbis. Rabbis were the Jewish teachers of an earlier day. And one of the famous rabbis was asked this. In the Talmud, the Talmud is a commentary on much of the Old Testament. In the Talmud, it says that the stork, the stork, is called the Hasida in Hebrew. And the word Hasida means the devout or loving one. The stork is called this Hasida, this devout or loving one, because the stork gives so much love to his mate and to his offspring. But then in the scripture, in the Old Testament, the stork is labeled as one of the unclean birds. Now the question of this rabbi was, why would the stork be called devout and loving, but then be labeled unclean? And this famous rabbi said, because the stork loves only his own. The stork loves his own, but he loves only his own. I think very often in the church, we become so accustomed to God's loving us that we don't really think about how God doesn't love just us. And not only that, we don't consider that God calls us into those places where God is loving, but we don't think we should. God's always calling us to move our love away from our own selves and out toward others, especially those that we don't want to love. And if you're like me, that's not something I want to do at all. You see, we the church, and really people in general, We'd much rather focus on ourselves and to embrace how much God loves us. The focus of our care is on ourselves. And we say things like this, that charity begins at home. Now that sounds nice. I hear the church say that all the time. I hear folks say that all the time. You know, that we have to take care of our own selves before we can begin to take care of others. 
Of course, when we say that, what inevitably happens is that we care for our own selves, and then we don't really care much about those who aren't of us. Oh, we do want to have other folks join up and be like us. But then when it comes down to taking care of others who are not us, if we give them anything and any thought, it's our leftovers. We give labels to them like the less fortunate, a subtle reminder that we are not those less fortunate. We make sure that we are not them. And all the while, Jesus is trying to tell us that there's no us or thems, there's just us. All of us are loved children of God. There's no my group first. There's no America first in God's way of thinking. There's no Christian first in how God acts and loves. And it doesn't end there. Because we're always called into practices of love that will make us uncomfortable. Perhaps you've heard that phrase, random acts of kindness. Doing things for others just because, and that's good. It's good that when we go um, yesterday at Kroger, um, Sunshine Center was um, asking people to, to buy stuff to give for the Sunshine Center, which is a wonderful organization. And that's a good thing to do. And we may say, oh, I'm going to go buy them some toilet paper and give them to them, and that's nice. But I think God calls us into more focused practices of giving of ourselves, getting our hands and feet and hearts dirty. And remember that list of people that Jesus lifted up, the poor, the oppressed, the broken, the captive. It's more than just buying stuff for others. Let me close by offering how I think God has been working on me in this way of Jesus' love. I hope you've heard of Martin Luther King. We celebrated his birthday a couple weeks ago. Federal holiday now. Perhaps you've heard Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech that he gave at the Lincoln Memorial. I have a copy of it in my office if you want to read it. It's a, quote, it's a, it's a sermon, it's a, it's a speech that people like to quote from. But we like to whitewash what Dr. King says and does. I was reminded of a, a, something that Dr. King wrote. April 1963, Dr. King and, um, and some others had been arrested in Birmingham, Alabama for protesting against abuses that had been hurled at African American people in that town. Eight white ministers, white ministers in the town wrote a, a, a piece that was in the paper telling Dr. King how wrong he was and that he needed to wait, that it was unwise and untimely for him to come in and do this. And in response, Dr. King wrote a letter, a letter while he was still in jail, called Letter from Birmingham Jail. It's very long, but I want to read just a small piece of it. He speaks of how um, some people have been helpful, but many others haven't. He says, uh, I must reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. And he says, I don't do that as a negative critic because he himself was a minister. His daddy was a minister. His granddaddy was a minister. 
He doesn't hate the church. He loves the church. But he says this, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted on the Negro, I've watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. In other words, preachers were so scared to stand up and speak truth and to act on truth because they didn't want to make their church people mad. Boy, does that still resonate. Then he goes on to say this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed, immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on. And the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically, astronomically intimidated. See, there's a word I didn't know. I can't say that one. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But things are so different now The church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it's an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community, it's consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity. It will forfeit the loyalty of millions, be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet people whose disappointment with the church is turned into outright disgust. What am I trying to say? I don't know. But boy, Dr. King's indictment speaks loudly on the church today because we are so afraid to step into what we don't know and to step into ways of love of Jesus that we just want to keep it like it is. And we want to love our own because charity begins at home, right? But you know, when we say that God is on our side and God is for us, I would challenge that to think that God is not on our side. God is on that side. How will we love as God calls us to love? That's the big question. That's the big thing in front of us, in front of our lives. It's a hard message for me.
But thanks be to God for God's grace and God's love. Amen.